2: You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young podcast.
3: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young podcast. This is Jason Roundsville. I'm joined today with my co-host, Dylan Ray, and we have a special guest, Steve Felix. How are you doing, Steve?
0: Hey, I'm doing great. Good hey, to be here, guys.
3: Steve, thanks for being here. First off, and tell us a little bit, when you're not killing world record elk, what, what else do you do in your spare time?
0: In my spare time, um, I uh, prepare to kill uh, try to kill big elk, so, All right. <laughs> um, which means, you know, I spend a lot of time shooting my bow. Um, I, I attend a few 3D arch. try to attend a few 3D archery shoots during the summer. Um, work on a little physical conditioning once in a while. Um, and besides that, I live in a great community in Northwest Montana, uh, Sealy Lake. Uh, try to spend a lot of time outside um, gathering firewood um, picking Huckleberries, uh, do some shut antler hunting in the spring from time to time and uh, just live try to live a, a a solid outdoor lifestyle here
3: in Montana. Very nice. I, I know I bumped into you a couple of times at 3D shoots up on the mountain there in Idaho. Yeah. So and uh, we had a chance to visit at the Mountain Archery Fest there and and you know it's kind of neat when a guy's coming off the hill from shooting the Pope and Young World Record course. And he sees his elk on the world record course. That doesn't happen every day. No, it
0: doesn't, and that, and that's pretty cool. Um, a couple friends of mine, we've shot that the last couple of years and had a lot of fun with that. And um, yeah, it's kind of surreal when you're when you're when you're shooting at something that's being represented for from for an animal that you've killed. So no, it's a lot of fun. That's so, great. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah,
2: Jason, me and Brandon were talking. At one of the last events, and uh, we come up with a, a solution that if your world record gets broken, then we send you the target. That way,
3: you get to have it forever. There you go. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Can Brandon afford that? That's a, we had ten new world records this year. That's a well, lot of money. Either way, he's got to replace them. I mean, he does so yeah. Either way,
2: you've got to make a new one if if uh, if it gets broken. So yeah. I think it's cool that the hunter that the hunter has the ability to shoot that animal whenever you know what I mean. Absolutely, because um, guys like me, and you will never get a chance. Now Steve can have the chance every day.
3: See, I I actually got the chance, and I shot a world record elk. It was just you know five years after Steve had already shot it. <laughs> so and I, I shot it on the Pope and Young world record course at the Mountain Archery Festival. And uh, you know, I, I think the first time, uh, actually, I think it was the first time we met was up there two years ago, and you were coming off the course, and and we got to meet, and and it was a lot of fun, and and you're like, you know what, it, it was fun shooting it, but it was better the first time. So I, I remember that quote. That was that was great. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. So you know what? Tell us. Um, I, I think a lot of people have. Uh, a misconceived notion in a lot of cases about oh well you know, somebody shoots a world record elk, he's, he's, you know, here's just some rich guy. He probably paid, you know, 50 grand to go shoot that elk. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people like a lot of people that, that know better or should know better have that. And like, well, you know, you know, I'm as good as anybody. So if it didn't happen for me, it couldn't. So I, I absolutely love this story because it is literally the story that it could have been me or it could have been dylan well maybe not dylan but it was you it could have been you and it was you (laughs) couldn't have been dylan couldn't have been dylan and so steve tell us the story because i i love the story and i think people will really enjoy hearing about how how someone goes about killing you know one of the iconic bow hunting species world records
0: yeah so um one of the things that's one of the reasons I live in Montana, you know, a lot of people ask me, oh, how long have you lived in Montana and, and um, why did you move here? And, and I grew up in Minnesota um, and I moved to Montana back in 1994. And the reason I tell people I moved to Montana is because Minnesota really doesn't have elk. So, um, and, and, and it's a true statement and they laugh, but, you know, that was one of the main reasons I moved out here, you know. That's um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a a, a a nice career with the Montana Department of Transportation. Um, I'm the maintenance chief presently in Missoula, so uh, I've got a very busy job, but I have some some really, really great people that I work with every day. And um, when you ask me what I do when I'm not all bow hunting, I have a, a very busy career. I uh, spend a lot of time at work. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... The, the beauty of being an, a, a, an elk hunter and a bow hunter in Montana is we have some of the best season uh, season lengths and dates um, that, that you can have anywhere in the country. And if you're a bow hunter um, and you're going to hunt in the lower 48, Montana's a tough place to beat. Um, we have a lot of versatility and, and a, a lot of opportunity if you're willing to get out and get after it. And um, I've... Uh, I've never paid an outfitter to go on an elk hunt before, um, so it, it's been totally a do-it-yourselfer um, for a number of years, and have have some really good hunting partners that I've that I've hunted with, and uh, learned a lot about elk hunting. Um, actually, the first time I came out elk hunting in Montana was in 1988. <clears throat> and hunted here in the Sealy Lake area where I currently reside. It's kind of come full circle there, which is kind of cool. Um, being able to work in Missoula, Montana and live in Sealy Lake, Montana, um, is, is, is pretty special. Um, it's a special place. The climate's awesome. The people are awesome. Um, it's not overly crowded, except in the last 18 months, it seems like it's gotten crowded because people have discovered it and COVID, uh, you know, the whole COVID situation is, has definitely, uh, had some unintended consequences for some of us here in Montana. Uh, a lot of people coming in, some good, some not so good. But uh, it's 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 changing like everything else. But um, so back to the story. So I uh, <clears throat> drew a, a, a limited, basically a limited entry type permit <clears throat> for for a rifle hunt, and it, which also allows you to bow hunt in, in an area um, in eastern Montana. Um, Back in 2016, and it's 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 there's some things to the to the story that are kind of interesting. I had my left shoulder replaced. It was basically wore out. It was bone on bone, and it was pretty painful, and it was difficult for me to even draw a bow or do much. So I, I elected to have that surgery, and there was a lot of apprehension there going into that surgery. I I, I was afraid. You know, am I ever gonna be able to bow hunt again and if something goes bad and how's it and how's it how's, how's how am I gonna be able to hunt or even draw my bow if if something doesn't go right? Is the muscle am I am I gonna be accurate? Am I gonna be able to do this again? So I was pretty concerned about it, but the pain was enough that I finally had to go and do it. And In the 2015 season, you know, leading up to 2016, um, I was able to get my bow drawn, but it was pretty painful and pretty difficult. And um, so coming into 2016, I had some more time to rehab and get stronger with that And, and coming into that into August of 2016, I was starting to feel pretty comfortable and pretty confident. Um, My shoulder strength was returning. Stamina was a little bit better. I could probably shoot about 25 arrows comfortably in in an evening. Um, Had to take it easy. I didn't want to inflame it, but and and out to about 60 yards, I was pretty accurate, um, had done, you know, and I was, I was confident, you know? Um, so leading up to that season, um, and my hunting partner Chad Tiffany, <clears throat> um, we had put in for the tag together, and we we both drew it, and we likely would have gotten the bow tag on a second choice. But since we had those rifle tags, we had we set some pretty lofty goals for ourselves. Um, if we if we weren't able to kill them with a bow, we'd be able to rifle hunt. But I I got to tell you, the bow hunting is better than the rifle hunting by far. Um, but we. <clears throat>
3: You're not, you're not going to get a lot of takers on that argument on this show.
0: I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. But, you know, get being able to bow hunt that country and, and we, we, we actually had started there a few years earlier. Um, and, and it, it's the country is, is not, does not have high elk density. It's a tough, tough area to elk hunt in. Um, you have to be mentally strong. You have to be extremely patient. You have to be very persistent. Um, it's uh, it's not the type of hunt where you're going to go out and, and hear a lot of elk bugling and and see a lot of elk and it, it, it's a different type of hunting. At least we found it to be successful. You have to be very patient. And you have to be you have to do a lot of glassing and you and you, you have to cover a lot of country. Um, so leading into leading into that season, Chad was really busy. He was trying to get a cabin built for his family up in the crazy mountains. So he was gonna have a difficult time getting away early in the season. Um, We had planned on spending about 10 to 14 days starting about September 18th or 19th. And me working for the Department of Transportation, the the opening week is uh, you generally always around Labor Day. And I went up and helped Chad with his cabin, his family, and it was really wet and rainy. So really weren't missing much. And coming into the second week of the season here, I got a call one morning about a, a bad accident on I ninety just east of Missoula, and I went out to help the guys and visit with the highway patrol captain to get some details of it. And it was a it was a double fatal accident; a father and a young child had been killed. And it was a those are very very tough to witness and see, you know, the scenes. And but it's important that we understand what ha- what happens on the roadways, and that's one of my jobs. And um, wasn't feeling, feeling real good about that. Uh, and I got back later that morning and looked at my work calendar and I didn't have a whole lot going on on Friday or Monday. So I said, you know what, I'm going to take off and head East and spend a couple days bouncing around over there and see if I can find some elk. And so I got up on that Friday morning, um, September 9th and threw my spike tent, my, in my my gear together quick and sleeping bag and threw some mountain house stuff in some Gatorade and in the Yeti and, and, and took off and headed for Eastern Montana. And I got camp set about seven 30, eight o'clock that night, just spectacular weather um, Montana in September. If if there's anything that's close to heaven, I, uh, that's gotta be, that's gotta be close. Um, you know, highs, 60s, 70s, low 80s. And, and, cool mornings and just the, the, the clearest air and the cleanest area you can find about anywhere. Um, so went to bed that night, you know, and, and, and being, I was 50 years old at the time. I just turned 50 a month before that and been hunting a lot of years, but, you know, we as bow hunters and hunters, you know, there's, there's always that internal drive that we have and, you know, I still get butterflies, you know, first day of the season you know you that anticipation is really really strong and you're you know you're you feel like you're a kid again you know the first time you got to go squirrel hunting or duck hunting or something like that you know you just remember those things and those those feelings trigger those memories and I think that's one of the reasons that's one of the reasons I hunt is um because it's you know it's it, it gets in your soul and it doesn't go away and um so, went to bed, claw- crawled in the sleeping bag, had, you know, and I, and I was, it was, it was good to be away from work um, and, the, and that bad accident met thought and I thought, you know, I'm going to get up, I'm going to get an early start, head in and just bounce around all day, glass, kick around, try to find sign, um, just see what I could do. So, got up about 3.45, 3.30 that morning, woke up fired up the jet boil, had some coffee quick, <clears throat> ate a banana, drank a little bit of Gatorade, got in the truck and headed down the road. And I didn't, it wasn't hunting very far from camp. So I remember the morning very, very well. It was pitch black, there was no moon, um, you know, so it, it had potential to be a pretty good morning. and. Um, parked my truck, rolled the windows down and, and just sat for a little bit, hoping to hear a bugle somewhere. And uh, there was nothing for about 15 minutes. So I said, well, I'll just get my gear together through my, um, carbon element in my pack and, um, cross the right way fence and headed in. Um, I wanted to be to a certain glassing spot by about 8 AM. Uh, I knew that country pretty well. And, um, was fairly confident that I might see an elk or two that morning, but um, started up and just as I started up the ridge, a a pretty strong south wind came up and just starting to barely break daylight and um, had about a two and a half mile hike into that spot and um, through some pretty good coolies and and up some long ridges and um, Ponderosa Pine Forest mainly is what it is. Um, So Headed in, and right before you know, right as I started in, um, I heard an elk bugle right before the wind came up. And I, I you know, gave myself a little fist pump, I was pretty excited. You know, you hear that first bugle of the season, and you know, all is right with the world. You know, I mean, it, it, it those are those are things you never forget. Um, so headed in and got cruising along, and I, w- I was probably a mile in on this nice little ridge and I looked over to my left and here's this spike bull elk looking at me about 15 yards away and I had the wind and he had this curious look on his face and he was he he didn't stop eating he was still chewing you know and he's looking at me and a oh, minute or two later I'll step a couple other spikes three spikes and um, still still velvet spikes you know that time of year and they really didn't give me a long look they weren't too concerned and they just kind of fed off the edge of the ridge and down and I felt like, well, that's a pretty good sign. Um, there's some elk around and um, started up the ridge a little further. And then I could start to hear some bulls bugling. But with the strong wind, I bet, I bet the wind was 15 to 20 miles an hour and it was steady. It wasn't a gusty wind. So it was difficult to hear exactly where those bugles were coming from. But knowing that country and, and being in there before, I had a pretty good idea where they were probably headed. So... I cruised along and, you know, stop and glass, listen, stop and glass. Um, and I got <clears throat> got to my bugle or my, I'm sorry, my glass and point at about eight, eight that morning. I took my pack off, was just getting ready to sit down and have a quick sandwich and sip some Gatorade and glass for a little bit. And I heard a bull bugle not very far away and I knew exactly where it was coming from. And the wind was starting to slow down just slightly so I could hear a little bit better. So I threw my pack back on, grabbed my bow, put my release on, and kind of cruised down that ridge and got to a point where I thought where the bugle came from that I probably might be able to see that bowl. So I threw my binoculars up and started glassing down below me. And sure enough, there he was. It was uh, (laughs) one of those moments where I I looked at him down there and I, and I, I went, holy blankety blank blank I mean that is a big bull and and he was kind he was kind of broadside to me and he was he there was this little pond of pine, kind of tucked tucked into this pucker brush type brushy stuff and he was just in there just ripping the shit out of it um and it was like it was kind of surreal you know watching him and and just the size I mean the length of all the all the points and I, I knew it was an exceptional elk um, well, you were right. I
3: was. I yeah, was. you were right on
0: that. <laughs> I was. <so. laughs>
3: but uh, and then Dylan, can we can we type up a quote? Was that uh, holy blankety blank blank? <laughs> that's yeah. a big elk. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a little one.
2: Yeah. Okay. What goes through your mind when you see a world record elk? And then we'll put a uh, Yeah.
0: Well, so. well, here would be here would yeah here would be the you know you, what goes through your mind. Well. What what went through my mind initially is, you know, just the size of it, and and because Chad and I had set, you know, fairly lofty goals. Our our goals that year were to um, kill elk that would you know be Boone and Crockett quality elk, three seventy five plus. That we we had we and we thought that that not an unre- unrealistic goal. We thought you know we thought one of us may be able to attain that you know so. Looking at that, Al, I said, "Well, I'm pretty sure that one would probably do it." Um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, yeah. you know. So, so I'm standing there, and 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 he's down below there, and and then another bull chimes off just above him, and and he and he and they're bugling back and forth a little bit, and and I'm looking, and I and the way the the wind was directly in my face, and it was and it was not varying, and it was steady. And where he was at, I, it took me, I don't know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds to kind of study the area around there. I said, I think I can get right on top of him, you know. So, I, I backed off, backed up off the ridge, kind of out of sight of him. And I shot down because there was a little bit of a coolie there, and there. And he was down in this little bowl. And... <clears throat> There was a little finger draw that kind of came down into that bowl. And I said, if I can get on top of that finger ridge there and kind of slip over the top of that, he may be right below me there if he doesn't move a lot from from the time it took me to get there. And he was about 400 yards away when I first saw him. And, you know, I I have good glass. I hunt with a pair of 10 by 50 Swarrows, and they are invaluable in that country. And but when you see something like that in a pair of 10 by 50 Swarrows, you see every detail So, you you know, you you talk about instant reaction, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, um, there's only a handful of guys in in the world that have ever ever seen an elk like that alive, you know, at that distance. But so took off down there, took me about 15 minutes to get to that, to that finger ridge there and slipped up over the top and he wasn't there. And I'm sitting there telling myself, okay, you know this country. You know what they like to do. It's shady down here. It's cool. There was elk sign all around me. I said, he's going to come back here. Stay right here. Do not go up above because if he has cows, they're going to be bedded above you here. Don't bump them. And in that 15-minute walk, you know, that that to get to that finger ridge, there's, there's a lot of things going through your mind. How are you going to play this out? What are you going to do? Um, let your instincts, you know, you've hunted long enough, trust your instincts, but don't bump into that mule deer doe or that little spike mule deer that's going to blow right into the middle, middle of them or chase them out. So you're looking for those types of things or that white tail doe that can pop up and, and, uh, blow things up. And uh, if you've bow hunted long enough, you know what I'm talking about. Um, or the, and the wind of course also the wind is, wind is everything when you're bow hunting elk or, or any or any animal but so had that strong wind and my wind checker I was confident you know um I, I I do not carry a bugle when I hunt over there so bugling we found bugling to be very ineffective those bulls with the with the low elk density those bulls I believe they know every bull elk within 10 miles 15 miles 20 miles around they they're not yeah, we we haven't when we hunted earlier there, we did a little bit of that, but we found that to be ineffective and we do very limited call calling. We found call calling to be extremely effective at the right time, but also found that overcalling doesn't do you a lot of good either sometimes. So very, very reluctant to use a call um, in the right situation we, we have, but it's not something we do a lot of. So so <clears throat> got to that point and I said, I said to myself, Stay here, don't move. He's gonna come back here at some point here in the next hour or two. Be smart because I knew how the land laid above and it opened up into a fairly big area. So my thought was, he's not gonna leave this spot here right now. Be patient, let it play out. What well, wasn't a few minutes later, and I look up and I hear, hear a bull bugle and the, Below me was kind of a little bit of a bull, like I said, and then it then it then it kind of rose up into this circular top. And I see this smaller bull walking away or walking away from where the bigger bull I figured he was. So he comes walking along. He bugles a couple times, and I said that big bull is not gonna be far from here. And sure enough throw my glasses back up, see some movement. And here he is walking directly behind that elk and he's all postured up. And when you see an elk that big, he was about a hundred yards away and I had my glasses on him. And he's one of those elk. When he walked like that, his head swayed back and forth and that rack was just sticking out. And I was just chuckling to myself going, Oh my goodness, that's a big bull. And, <clears throat> and I kept calm. I said, I said to myself, he is going to walk right down here. Don't blow this. Don't call. You know, you, you, and just be patient. It, let it happen. So he and I'm and I'm I'm pretty confident that he had cows bedded up above, and he was just kind of walking that bull off away from there. So they're kind of, they're going out across that upper bowl, and I said he's going to turn and come down here any second. Sure enough, he took a few more steps and he turned. And he starts down and I'm still probably 90 95 yards away from him I said be patient he's going to come right down here so
3: <laughs> and uh, that's that's Dylan for you and me it'd be more like be patient be patient stop
0: shaking yeah. you know so so here he comes and 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 I've got my range finder and I've got my arrow knocked and I, and I'm, and I'm, I, you know, my heart's beating a little bit, but I, but I kept it together off pretty well, actually. So here he, here he's coming, he's at 90 yards, he's at 80 yards and he's, he's slowly coming there, bugling back and forth and he's feeding a little bit. So he's really comfortable. Um the other bull's feeding a little bit and, you know, he's just kind of keeping that bull, letting him know, don't come over here, you know. Kind of paying attention to what he's doing and he's at 70 yards, you know, and I'm like, only take a shot at this elk if it's the perfect setup. You got a lot of time this season. Be smart about this, but don't screw it up. So he's common. He's at 65 and he's starting to, he, he's, he's directly across from me now. And if he goes another 10, 15 yards, it's, he's going to get out of it. My, my shooting lane is going to be pretty limited at that point. So it's 65, 64, 63. And this took, this took 15, 20 minutes as I'm watching him do this. So there's plenty of time to be nervous and, and, The last time I arranged him, he was at 61 yards. He had his head down and his front leg forward. That was towards me. And I said, well, it's now or never. So his head was down. I drew, got a clean draw. He never lifted his head. And I said, so I, so I tucked that 60 yard pin right behind the shoulder where I wanted it. And I, and I, and I released and I'll, I'll never forget that arrow flying. And it's just etched, etched in my mind. and I don't remember necessarily seeing the arrow hit, but I heard it and he and he flinched down and he turned and he ran straight up away from me. and I threw my Binox up on him. I could see the arrow all the way through and buried up to the fletching and he ran straight up away from me and my initial thought was, oh, it's a little high. And then he, he ran up, he ran about 20 yards up and he stopped momentarily. And when he took off again, he stumbled. And I said, took the lungs right out of him. It's over. I said, I got him. So he takes off and I was pretty sure I heard him go down. Um, And then, oh, just a few seconds after that, that smaller bull just comes peeling out of there. And I said, he went down. That's why that bull's leaving. And that's when I lost it. That's when I, that's when I just melted down, you know, my knees were shaking. I mean, I was just like, Oh my God, what just happened? You know, it's so nervous and, you know, and then, and then, you know, you're sitting there, you know, I'm pretty sure I got them. I'm pretty sure i am got them. But if you're a bow hunter, you you know, you don't have them until you got your hands on them, you know? And so I'm just sitting there, you know, playing the scenarios through my head, you know, and I said, you know, told myself, you got to give them 30 minutes. you've been taught that you, you've followed that your entire career. Do not push them because we've all been there. If you go on it long enough, you've seen those things happen and, and sometimes they don't turn out very well. So, um, so I sat down, grabbed my Gatorade out of my pack and started going through my gear. I, I mean, I was so, I was, I was so nerved up. I spilled Gatorade down the front of my shirt as I was trying to, you know, calm myself down and what color, Grape.
3: great. Okay, purple,
2: gray. Yeah, yeah,
3: orange guy. I'm gonna add that to my. Not anymore, man. I I don't like grape, but if it'll help me kill a world <laughs> record, I might switch over. There you go. Yeah. So, so
0: you know, I I to give him a half hour. I looked at my um my Garmin GPS. How about that? So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> shameless, plug, yeah. out the
3: shameless plug we'll take it all day long <laughs> so um
0: and uh it was it was about nine o'clock I said wait till 9 30 do not go over there so went through all the stuff in my pack you know like my knives my game bags you know my saw I made sure I had everything you know and I knew, and I knew I did because I hadn't checked everything out the night before and um and sat, 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 and I said, well, half hour, let's go see what's going on, and um, walked across to where I shot him, no blood, no hair, but I knew exactly where he went up, so I get up to the top, and I could see the grass where it's tore up, and it it benched out real nice, and it was kind of a scattered ponderosa, um, little park meadow, and I took maybe 15, 20 steps with my head down, and I looked up, and there probably 20, 25 yards away. I could see the main beam sticking up out of the grass. And I, and, in that, and I was just like, and
2: oh then my. it was on.
0: And then I was like, Oh my. So I, I got, I, I walked up and I, and I went about, I got about 10 yards from him and I stopped and I turned around and went back and sat down for a minute and put my hands in my head and said, Oh my God, what have I done? I, th- I think I've, this has been a dream of mine for, for 35 years, you know, um, a a truly a truly big elk you know a 350 elk is a truly big elk but a 447 elk is is something that most people can't even dream about yeah because it's not realistic so so i walked up to him looked at him you know was just an awe i said a couple prayers of thanks you know um the good Lord and the hunting partners over the years that went to happen without, you know, supportive parents and supportive friends and things like that. You know, you never, you had to appreciate the people that that helped get you there. So I, I didn't have, you know, the ability to take great field photos because I was by myself. So I took a couple of quick videos with my phone. Um, I think those have been shared. Outdoor Life ran them when they ran the story back in uh, 2017. They've been viewed by a few million people. It's pretty real stuff, you know. I mean, it's it's
3: that's 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 real. And so, <clears throat> I, I now was there. A, was there any kind of dance involved, like a happy dance, or any kind of like a touchdown celebration, anything no, of that nature?
0: No, okay. that's not. That's not my style generally. Right. I mean, I mean. Well, that's our I'll, style.
2: We're, we're uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I would well, have yeah. been boogieing on that mountain. I oh, hear yeah. you. You
0: know, when you, when you come up on an animal like that, it is, that is incredibly humbling. I mean, that, 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 that critter was, good Lord's not making many of them. No. So, um, so you know, and I, and I, and I, the thing that's so cool about this elk is he's so symmetrical, and killed him on September 10th. There isn't a point that's broomed off, rubbed down, split, cracked. I mean, he is just perfect condition, you know. Um, and I, and I knew the elk was big, and, and when and when I was taking that video in the first few minutes after I got there, uh, I knew it was a 380 plus elk, but it never occurred to me that this could be a 447 inch gross elk and So
2: did world record ever even cross your mind? N- no, it
0: did not. Um, and, and that's where this story gets really, really interesting here. This, this, this story gets even better so um, <laughs> which is uh, which is I think why a lot of people enjoy hearing it. but um, so <clears throat> I had to get to work. I mean, I'm by myself. I got to break this bugger down. I got to get him quartered, split, uh, caped, um, hung. I mean, I, there was no way I was going to get that elk out all in one day. So I had to get him cooled out. So I went to work, skinned him, caped him, got all the meat into game bags. It was a three-hour three, three hour ordeal, um, a lot of work when you're when you're not used to doing it that that's the that's the kicker with those things
3: well by yourself with an elk is just hard you know it it takes somebody you know it, it's nice to have somebody there even if they're just holding the leg and exactly. and helping you out it's hard to do an elk by yourself exactly so i was
0: i used those havilon printed parented knives and um i literally went through a dozen blades breaking him down um I have been around a lot of bull elk on the ground, a lot of field dressing, a lot of field work quarters, deboning. I'll tell you this elk was an incredible specimen. He had fat on his hinds that were two inches thick. Um, so he was he was uh, an incredible animal. And the habitat there um, that year, that area had burned previously in 2012. Talking to some biologists, you know about it. Um, they say that time frame there with a burn like that, it was a, it was a, it was a, a mainly a ground burn. It didn't kill a lot of the trees, um, so it wasn't super hot. But they said that type of grass in that country is almost like green alfalfa. At about the fourth year after that burn, it is so nutritious. Yeah. And and habitat, you know, Pope and Young. We you know, we, habitat is still key to animals. I don't care where you're at. If you don't have habitat, you don't have critters. And that was so true with this elk. So, so I got him broke down. I didn't hung up, and I knew I did. I didn't have enough coolers with. I had two coolers um, with me. I had a Yeti and a and a, and a large uh, another large one. But it, I knew it wasn't going to be enough to get everything in. So at about two and a half mile walk pack out back to the truck and threw some up and down stuff it wasn't like a flat a flat all downhill so it was probably in the mid 60s by then warm but i had that i had everything in game eggs i had it down low i had good air circulation so i was pretty confident i was going to be okay um, with the meat so my thought was to pack heaviest to lightest so take the heaviest load first And then start, so you're not, so you're not having the the heaviest loads last. So the heaviest thing I had was the cape. I had left a ton of cape and horns, and I said I'm going to take that first. It's going to be the most miserable thing to pack, so I'm going to get that out of the way. I've got a good pack. Mystery Ranch makes a heck of a pack for packing meat and packing horns, and I'd packed a elk on that before and deer and things and um, antelope and Got it snugged up, got it on my back. I went about 20 yards and it was slightly downhill, and that ain't gonna work. It was too heavy, too awkward. So, unpacked it. What I was gonna have to do, I was gonna have to skull cape or cape him off the skull and skull chop him, which I was not super excited about doing that. But that's the only way I was gonna get it out of there by myself. Huh. So I went down, went back to where the meat was, hung that, the elk, got it wedged up as high as I could, the rack, and took a load of meat, took, took the next heaviest load of meat. Um, got back to my truck about, uh, must have been 5-ish, 5.30-ish, um, was pretty dehydrated, pretty tired, and I said, get this back to camp, got it in the Yeti said, I need some more ice. I need dry ice. So I raced to town, got three more coolers, got some dry ice, got back to town. Now that's a good day hunting
3: when you're buying three more coolers and yep, dry right, ice. That's- right.
0: Right. Absolutely. So I, so I, so I raced back to camp. I didn't race back to camp, but I got back to camp. It was probably seven thirty, eight o'clock tired, trying to drink as much Gatorade and water as I could. Might've been a beer mixed in there or two. Um, so I so I I said, I'm gonna get up early and get after it." So I got up at two o'clock the next morning, got in there, hiked in quick, and went to um, skull caping. So um, got it peeled off, a little nervous in the dark with my headlamp, sawing those antlers off because I didn't want to make a mistake and split them somehow but I made a really good, I made really good cuts. Didn't take that long. I had a good sock, got them off and it was still super heavy, but I threw the cape in my pack, got the horns on and, and headed out and going through some sagebrush, I took two miserable headers, you know, and when, you, when you're doing that, it's work, you're pissy, you know, you're like, um, it, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's rewarding work, but it's hard. And got my feet tangled up in some sagebrush, and oh shit, tumbled and get up bitching, you know. And and um, but I got but but I got it back to the truck. And I and I said, you know, by two o'clock or three o'clock this afternoon, this is going to be pretty hard. So I got on my GPS hard, and I found and I knew it. I knew the road was there. I'd never been on it, but I knew it was there. There was a road that came around the backside. It was an open forest service road. So I so I said, I'm gonna try to get closer. So I loaded the rack in the cape, the pack in the truck, and headed down. And I got within about a half mile of where the elk was. But it's a lot steeper. Um, so I said, Well, make it work, buddy. You gotta get this done. So I headed up and I had all everything back to the truck, three more loads. I had everything back at at two o'clock in the afternoon and in the coolers and that is a pretty rewarding feeling gentlemen when you
3: when you get that done and um no it's pretty now, when you went back for that next load did you lock those I, I they probably wouldn't even fit in the front of the truck you had to put them in the back and just I put them in the there. back
0: and i left them in the back Whew, i left man. them in the back you know I, well you know i mean Montana guys are generally good guys and I mean somebody could somebody have grabbed it they sure could have you know um was it the smartest thing to do probably not but I was just focused on trying to get get the get it done right um legs were cramping tired you know your 50 they're 50 year old legs they're good legs but they're 50 year old legs and um with some pretty sore ankles and knees and um But got it down there, grabbed a beer out of the cooler, went over and sat under a ponderosa pine and just reflected on a lot of things. And pretty emotional moment. Um, Wishing Chad was there. Um, You think about a lot of things and, you know, you don't set out. I never set out to be this great trophy hunter or or whatever. But when, when you dream about certain things, and and you're able to accomplish those goals. It's, it's awfully rewarding. Um, and Jason, you had, you talked earlier about, um, could have been any one of us and that's true. It could have been, it really could have been. It wasn't, it wasn't an outfitted hunt. It was, you know, it's just, I, I, would like to think it was a guy being persistent and following his instincts and and just doing the best he could and, and loving every minute of it. Even though when you you wipe out, you're pissy and you're, you know, you're tired and you're, you know, You're cussing, yeah. you know, you, you, you get up and you look around.
3: Well, did anybody see me do that? And nobody oh, saw oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, see, no. You know, at least if you're going to be pissy, you know, be pissy with the world record 400 and some <laughs> inch ball and, yeah. you know, man, Dylan, we're, we're, we just, you know, we take headers with our fork and horns. So right. right.
0: But, you know, so that's, you know, packing those elk. That's, it's a lot of work when you have a hunting partner and, and that was oh, five yeah. and that was five loads, you know, and, 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 and I was, you know, I had been working pretty hard, you know, on the, on the ellipticals and, on, you know, the, the the bikes leading up to that. And I was in pretty decent shape. Um, my legs were really strong. And that's the key is your legs when you're packing like that. But um, pretty rewarding. So drank that beer, got up, got back to camp that afternoon. And probably, probably got back about 4 o'clock. Took the rack out, laid it by the tent. Probably not the smartest thing to do. But... Um, at that point, I didn't give a shit. It was like, yep. So my goal was to, you know, get something to eat, get to bed, get up early in the morning, break camp and head for home. So my original plan was to be back to work on Tuesday. You know, Monday was going to be the travel day. So, and this was Sunday night when I got back. And a couple there were a couple other hunters camp nearby and they saw the elk land there. So they drove over and uh, congratulations, great elk, you know. And... I asked the one dude what do you think that elk scores and he says oh, i'm betting 370 380 maybe a little better and so i thought my guess was pretty good you know i, I think i'm right there and, and just looking at it the symmetry was so good you i knew there was not going to be much for deduction so i said, yeah this is super cool so go to bed tired dehydrated get up that next morning to a to a light rain just as the sun's coming up and it took me 15-20 minutes to break camp down quick through the tent in headed out and the rain's intens intensifying and um I was able to get a couple text pictures out to Chad and he, he and he texted me back I really couldn't talk to him and I said, I think he's 380 plus and he texted me back and he says, dude, it's bigger than that just by looking at the picture. And I said, well, maybe I said, but I said, yeah, I'll see you later today with it. Cause I was headed back towards home and he lives in Bozeman and Bozeman was on the way home. So I uh, was cruising along and I, and the Cabela's in Billings, Montana off I-90 there has a, uh, they did, I haven't been in there for a while, but they had a 400 inch elk, life-size mount as you walk in the store so I figured it was Monday morning it's a little rainy probably not super busy so I parked right out in front of Cabela's and wanted to go in there and look and kind of compare real quick on my way home everybody gives me crap about parking there in Billings somebody could have grabbed that rack well they could have but I was I, I kept an eye on it as I walked in the store I could still see it but So I walk in and I look at look at that elk and I study it for a minute or two and then I walk back out and I look at the rack in the back of my truck and I went said to myself, oh boy, this rack in the back of my truck is considerably bigger than that one. So, So I was like, but I was tired, wanted to get home. So got out of there so then I called my taxidermist John Berger and Bozeman and said John I'm gonna drop the cape off if you're not there no problem because I figured he was probably hunting somewhere but he but he wasn't he was actually having lunch downtown at the Western Cafe in one of his favorite spots but I said I told him I got a good one I said I think he's 380 maybe maybe a little maybe a little bit better he said well I'll be there I want to see it um so I got to Bozeman at one o'clock, pulled into his driveway and he wasn't there yet. He was still down at the cafe. And um, I popped the tailgate and had it sitting there on the back, back of the tailgate. And he drives in and he comes over and he looks at the elk and he studies it for a minute or two. And he, he looks at me kind of quizzically and he says, what do you think that scores? And I said, well, I think it's probably 380, maybe a little better. And he says, it's way bigger than that. And I said, well what should we do? And he says, well, let's put a rough score on it. So he goes into his shop. He's got a, he works out of his basement and he grabs a cloth seamstress tape and a manila envelope. And like, he said, I'll score and you write. I said, no problem. So he said, I'm going to be very conservative. I'm going to round everything down. So did it in about 15 minutes Had a, had a left column, a right column and a, and a, and a spreadsheet. And um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing any numbers in my head. So I grabbed my calculator when, when we were done and I added up one, one side and I, and I looked at the number and I laughed and I said, well, I had to misadd. So I added up again. I came up with the same number. And I'm like, whoa, boy. So then I added up the other side. And when I talked about symmetry, I came up with the exact, the exact same number. Wow. So I looked at Berger and I said, Burger it's 390 without the spread credit. And we both kind of looked at each other. And I said, when I put the spread credit in there, it's like 432 or something, John. He says, what? I said, yeah. And he says, and I said, we started, we chuckled and said, well, what's the world record? I said, I don't know. I have no idea. So we got on our phones and of course we pulled it up and Sean Patterson, 412 and change, I think in 2004. And, we, we laughed and burger, burger bellers out. It's the new world record. It's the new world record. And I said, well, not so fast, but maybe, <laughs> you know, you know. So John says, we need to call Fred. And Fred King is a uh, Boone and Crockett and, and Pope and Young measurer. He lives in the Galton Valley. And um, Fred's a pretty famous scorer. He's been on several panels. He was on the Spider Bowl panel. He was on the Milo Hansen world record. Um, whitetail panel so he's very well respected and he knows his business and and I've had Fred score some animals over the years and he's he's a super nice guy he's he's he explains to you what he's doing and he he's 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 quite an asset to Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett and he and he worked for Montana Fish Wildlife and Parks for a lot of years and was was really a great advocate for Montana Montana Wildlife and Fish Wildlife and Parks great guy but so he comes over. It's here about twenty minutes, and John calls him up, and he says, "And Fred, Fred knows, Fred knows John well too." And he said, "Burger, what do you got?" Burger says, "I got the new world record over in my shop." Fred says, "I'll be over there right away." So here he comes. takes takes him about twenty minutes, and he comes in around the corner of the shop, and we had it laying in on the floor of the rack, and he looks at it, and he goes, "Oh my!" So he said let's put a green score on it and I said by all means so he brings his briefcase in and gets the score sheets out and he is yep. an extremely meticulous fella that's so, a
3: measure right there that's a
0: measure exactly so so and by that point I, I called a couple of friends Chad got there and, and a couple of other close friends Corey and Kent and they show up and Fred is, you know, I've got the Manila envelope laying there, and Fred's writing on a score sheet. And Berger, being the taxidermist he is, he grabs the the cape and he starts fleshing the cape. So Berger's fleshing the cape. I'm holding the horns for Fred, and my friends are in the background watching. And, and Berger told me when he was doing this that he was being really conservative with the numbers, and I and he was right. So Fred's Fred starts scoring. He writes a number down, and I look over and see what I wrote down, and I'm looking over at Burger and I'm going, "It's way
3: bigger, Burger. It's way bigger." So,
0: <laughs> which was fun, you know. Oh, I mean, yeah. so so Fred spent a lot of time and he was meticulous. So, and and he's adding stuff up, and I'm watching, I'm watching, and I look down at at the gross score, and it's 448 and some inches, and I'm like. Oh my goodness. So Fred gets done and he announces the girl's score and everybody just kind of stood there in stunned silence, you know, like, Oh my goodness. You know, um, Chad got a little emotional, you know, cause we, 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 had, we, we set some good goals for ourselves and one of us had gotten there and it was, uh, so, you know, every, and then everybody was kind of high-fiving and fired up about it. And we took a ton of pictures then. And, um, and Fred was, you know, really happy to be a part of it. And nothing was official by any means, but it was it was a pretty good feeling. And uh, 448 and a 429 and something net score. Which at that point, there wasn't a lot of doubt that... Um, that this was probably the new world record. There was no, there was no, you know, so it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty private guy. I'm not, I'm not, I don't crave the spotlight. I don't, it doesn't make me feel real comfortable some days. And and I've learned to be a lot better with that over this whole thing, but um, it, Chad still had that tag. And um, I didn't really want a lot of people knowing where we were and pretty protective of that spot and we still are, but, um, it's, uh, so I, I said, you know, we took pictures. We've got,
3: uh, we do have a graphic up right now a map with the pinpoint for that spot. <laughs> sure <you do>. Everybody <laughs> just check, go <laughs> to the website. It's right there. We've got the pin. No problem. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so,
0: so that's how you drive website <laughs> traffic right there. Right. Right. So, I'm tired. I want to get home. Chad says, You're not going home, buddy. You're staying at my place tonight. I said, Okay. Checked the meat. Meat had plenty of ice. It was cold. It was good. Um, so, stopped and got a nice bottle of Buffalo Trace and um, called over a few close friends and got to tell the story there that night and drink a little whiskey. And there was, well, we probably had 20 people there at Chad's house. And, um, It was a good night.
3: Um, That's, You know, one of the things that I just, well, there's a lot of parts that I love about this story, but the one that you touched on initially is, you know what, this didn't start off as a quality story. This started off as, hey, you know what, I had a really rough day at work. And, you know, it's, it's a, you talk about, you know, being persistent and a lot of people, they have that rough day at work and then they just go sit on the couch and they, they don't get off the couch and drive up the mountain. And that's the persistence that you look at right there that made it. And it's like, Hey, I had a had a bad day, you know, seeing something like that. I, I can't imagine that. And, and then you went anyway, you know, your buddy was busy, but you went anyway, did it by yourself. And then you went to a place, public land hunt um, and the whole thing is just a great story. I mean um, at any point in time, the decision could have been made to not proceed, to not go to the next step. Sure, And then, you know, then when you came around the, the rise and you're expecting him to be there and he's gone and you're just like, okay, 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 okay. Oh, he's not there. What now? And then, you know, you made a decision and, it's possible he could have never come back, but he did. You made the right call because you knew the area and you knew the, your quarry. And it's just, to me, all of those things combine, you know, the the start off with, with a bad day and then, then you made the choice to go, even without your hunting buddy. And, and all of those, to me, just combine to make it the kind of story that I think people need to hear
0: it is a pretty cool story, isn't it?
3: It, it really is. is. You know, and it was even when you were telling us they're in the tent there at math, it's just like, wow, you know, that it really resonated with me because it, it could have gone either way. I mean, how, back in the day they used to have those stories. It was choose your own ending. And, you know, you could say, Hey, do you want to go left or right? And then you turn to that page. And this is a lot like one of those is, is, and, and fortunately you chose all the right, turns you know throughout the whole story you know
0: as as hunting as many years as i have as i have you know that day started out feeling special from the day i got up the time i got up i knew you know i've had a handful of those days you know where everything works yeah everything comes together they're they're rare um you know as bow hunters people don't realize how hard an elk is to kill with an arrow. Um, it is difficult. Things have got to go perfect, or you can forget it. Um, those those elk generally do not make many mistakes, especially those big ones. Yeah, that's um, and, how they get big. Exactly. And this elk had been hunted. He, he, he was not, I mean, Everybody says, well, they had seen him before. I don't know if anybody's seen him before. Maybe, maybe not. I don't think we had. We may have. But the interesting thing about this bull is he's only six and a half years old. We, we had a, a tooth cut. Um, a good friend of mine, Matt Nisland, and his, his wife, Carolyn, has and Labs in Bozeman. And she um, offered to cut a tooth and six and a half Wow. it just speaks of the genetics and the the special wow. The special part of that out that you know it's just a special elk and
3: yeah, you know, the you genetics know. the habitat the feed you, yep. you know you got him early before he was breaking points off i mean just everything came together exactly to get the you know a number like that
0: and it's interesting you know i mean i had a a pretty darn good run of luck there so I killed that elk on September 10th and I, and I met my wife on September 18th. So, and I, and I tell people, you know, uh, yeah, the elk was lucky, but Darla was way luckier for me. And, uh, she's been through this whole, whole elk story with me and everything. And she's a great lady and super supportive and yeah, it's, uh, I had a pretty good run of luck there. I put a pretty good eight day stretch of luck.
3: That's so, a pretty good stretch right there, <laughs> yeah, Steve. Yeah.
0: It is. It is. So
3: that's, uh, no, that's great. And, and it's one of those things where, where I, I heard it and I instantly, I knew, you know, for anyone who hadn't heard the story, they needed to hear this story because it's just, it can, it really can happen to anybody. And, you know, it's, it's great that it happened to you. And, and, you know, I appreciate talking to people and, you know, that genuinely appreciate the opportunity of the situation that they're in. And it's, it's not like, you know, if that bull would have been a 385, you'd have still been pleased. You'd have been plum happy with three. It wouldn't matter,
0: right? It wouldn't to, went to, yeah. matter. I, I was thrilled with that elk. I mean, it's, you know, you, you, it's easy for guys to get caught up in score and all this and everything. I mean, that elk is what it is. I mean, it just happened to be the world record, you know? um, I didn't set out that day to kill the world record. That's never, I mean, yeah. as a, as a kid growing up, you know, you think, oh, man, I mean, you, 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 you want to be um, successful, you know, it's interesting story, a little, another little backstory here. I grew up in Minnesota and my mother was a, an English teacher, an English major. Um, and she, she taught, you know, reading was very important to her being well-read, being very, very grammatically correct. And, Um, So I spent a lot of time in the library or in the school library when I was growing up. And I remember reading an article in Outdoor Life about the the Montana state record when I was probably 13, 14 years old. Fred Mercer had the typical Montana state record until my elk bumped that off. So I, I remember that. So interesting story. Fred Mercer killed the former Montana, typical state record, I think in 1958 in Madison County. And I remember reading the story in outdoor life and thinking, man, someday it'd be cool to go out in Montana, you know, growing wow. up in Minnesota. So, so yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, and, you know, and being able to, to come and live here in Montana and live in, live in Sealy, you know, I'm, I've lived a very blessed life, you know, so.
3: Well, it's neat. And it's, um you know you moved to montana partly for the elk hunting we had uh frank noska on the other day and he's like hey man i moved to alaska because there's more to hunt up here yep and it's you see that and it's it's truly neat when you hear about that and then it all comes together so well i'll tell you what steve we, we have one question that we ask every guest on this program I I may, I may know what your answer is, but, but I can't wait to actually hear it. So what is one thing when you're, when you're putting your pack together, what is one thing kind of maybe a non-traditional item that you have in your pack that, that you can't live without?
0: One thing I can't live without. If there's one thing that I cannot live without is my 10 by 50 swirls. Okay. That is one thing I cannot
3: live without. All right. Dylan, can we take, 10 by 50 Swirrows. What do you think? I think we're going to have to probably get Swarrow on the phone. And, I, think, uh,
2: <laughs> I think if you kill a world record, you can give me whatever answer you want to, and I'm going to accept it.
3: You know what? Point taken. Because technically, you know, is not a corporate partner yet, uh, but neither is Uncrustables, and we took Uncrustables.
2: Oh, and that's
3: the <laughs> you know I, I mean we we took lipstick the other day from shelly Fulton so I you know what we'll go with ten by fifty swirls
2: you know Jason I got to give you a quick follow up so I post on on social media the other day and it was like what's your favorite tree stand snack and I commented and said we here at Pope and Young are passionate about our uncrustables. There was like 40 dudes commenting back, being like, Amen, <laughs> preach on it. Like you got it. Like Did you post the video? You no. Know, well, I've posted the video <laughs> before, but but I just commented on their post and they were and dudes were jumping all over it and they're like, Yeah, you're right. Wrap it in a napkin. It's not as loud. Like they had they had loved this ever since they were children. And I'm like, well. We're not wrong. We're, Number one tree stand snack of America.
3: You know, we need to google Uncrustables every day on to see what pops up on Facebook and you just throw our video in every single thread. So, anyway, yeah, Steve, we we like to have fun here. So, it's uh so we're gonna, we're going to take your answer. We're going to put it on the list and uh, and and I can't blame you there. They they do make some good glass.
0: Yes, they do. Can't live without them. So,
3: well, I'll tell you what, what's a piece of advice for somebody else out there who just saw your article and is just hearing about it, thinking, man, it should be nice to hunt elk in Montana someday.
0: The best, the best thing I can say is be persistent, be patient, and trust your instincts because they're usually right. So um, I've learned that over the years, trust your instincts because they're they're, they're they're more right than they are wrong generally so excellent and, be, well, and and persistence
3: be persistent so get, and get off the couch
0: right on you can't get them yeah. from
3: the couch you can't get them from the couch so well I'll tell you what we uh we're gonna be back in Reno in 23 and uh, we're expecting 150 world-class records and uh, hopefully we've got a couple that are even challenging your bowl although, that's a big challenge um, but anyway we we've got a brand new world record section that we're having at convention every year so uh, yeah we'd love to see that bowl in Reno in 23.
0: yeah we've talked about that I, I, I like we talked I, I'd like to see that I'd like to see the original there in uh, Springfield when you guys get that done so yeah. um, I think that would be a awfully good place for it
3: so Sounds good. Yep. Well, hey, uh, thanks so much for being with us. I love the story and I, I love the hope that it brings everybody who hears it. And I hope everybody enjoys that and, and gets that takeaway that it it literally could be you. So
0: it's a good story, isn't it? It's a good it story. It is a
3: really good story. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I, I appreciate it, guys.
3: You bet. Steve, thanks so much. Have a great day. We'll talk soon.
0: Thank you.